You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. joined today again by Greg Elder, who's the chief historian for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And this is a continuation of a regular conversation with DIA discussing their key role in providing intelligence for decision makers at the Pentagon, on the battlefield, and in Washington. And today, we get a chance to discuss something for the very first time openly. That's the DIA role in the Osama bin Laden raid. So welcome, Greg. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I mentioned that this is kind of a first-time thing because some of this information we're going to talk about today has just been cleared for public consumption. That's right. So we're doing our own museum right now, and as part of that, we really want to get out some new stories and talk about some things that our agency has done that aren't really well or publicly known. And you know, here at the hunt for Bin Laden, it's something that uh, everybody knows about. It's one of the, it's the number one manhunt, you know, effectively in the last couple hundred years. Uh, but people typically think of the hunt for Bin Laden as being a one agency. Uh, type of mission. And, and what we want to be able to talk about is um, our role in it, but also to, to express the fact that this is truly all government and not just all government effort. Like this, this was truly a global effort uh, to try to get him. And, and DIA, we had our own special role and, and part that we played um, in, 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 in bringing bin Laden to justice. Well, I mean, and this is a 10 year manhunt. I mean, you look at uh, we talked to people in the past, whether it was people like Mike Morrell or others that were intimately involved in the hunt for Bin Laden. Um, this took a while, and, and it's something that, even though there was a multi-agency, multi-nation hunt, there's a ten-year hunt for this guy. You know, you can't find one tall Arab man who has dialysis machine everywhere he goes. Uh, but there, there's a lot of issues involved in this. Yeah. So. I like to talk, when we talk about the hunt for Bin Laden and what took so long, uh, I like to talk about our own internal homeland-related example, uh, and that's Eric Rudolph, the Atlanta bomber, who also conducted a series of abortion bombings. So 1996, Atlanta bombing happens. He doesn't get arrested until 2003. Uh, Number one manhunt in the United States. He was number two on the FBI's most wanted list behind Bin Laden. Million-dollar reward. He's in the United States. Uh, Major manhunt in North Carolina going after him, and it took all that time to be able to get him uh, because he used the environment to his advantage. He had associates who were willing to help him out. And ultimately, when they captured him, uh, it was by sheer luck. He was rummaging through dumpsters. 
at, at, a, at, a, at like a food line or some at some place and, and a police officer just happens to catch him. That's in our own country. When it comes to bin Laden, you know, the interesting thing is this is a guy who once he was able to make it out of uh, Tora Bora, uh, he has large expanses of territory to be able to operate in. Uh, he has a population who's generally sympathetic to him. Um, grossly undergoverned regions. Uh, it's easy to say, you know, well, we have the most sophisticated intelligence capability in the world, and we have all of our partners working with us as well. But something that's often forgotten is that the adversary has a say in this too. And he was their poster child, you know, so to speak. He was the face of global jihad. And it goes to the fact that they were willing to literally sit him on the sidelines effectively to keep him alive and keep that movement alive and be able to, to do those publications and those those few broadcasts that they did of him to put his face out there to let people know he was still alive, even if it meant essentially sidelining him from the jihad, because by putting him where they did, his communications were limited, his timely ability to be able to impact operations and be able to direct the organization was extremely limited. But they 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 limited his communication through one person who we'll talk about. Uh, they put him in a place that was was not as easily understood as, as you might have thought he was as other places. Um, then the other thing I like to say is if you take, you know, often we thought that he was in the Waziristan area, you know, operating actually in, in the tribal districts of, of Pakistan and Afghanistan and such. If you actually look at that on a map, the space that you're talking about, it's larger than the state of California. Right. So this isn't, you know, this isn't even Eric Rudolph, who we knew was operating in a small part of, of North Carolina. I mean, this, this was a person who was truly able to operate in a large environment. We didn't know, of course, until much later that he was actually holed up in, 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 in a single compound. But the areas that we had to look to try to find him um, and the limitations and the capability, uh, the communications that he had going in and out of where he was made it extremely difficult to be able to target him. Well, we want to talk about the raid at, at down the line a little bit, but thinking about special operations raids, and, and, and everyone, I think, knows the story that, you know, the Navy SEALs, SEAL Team 6, is involved in the actual raid on Abbottabad. Um, but that's a military unit, and the DIA is designed to support military units. And you think about the fact that these kind of raids for either rescues or counterterrorism operations weren't invented for the bin Laden raid. They go back at least as far as the 1960s, even before that, um, and DIA has been supporting them the entire time. Yeah, so our first major foray into supporting you know, special operation, special forces uh, operations uh, was in Sonte during the Vietnam War, where we conducted all of the operational intelligence. We actually sent people out forward to enable the um, operations, uh, operations folks to actually get on the ground and conduct a major raid in Vietnam and operate you know, well behind enemy lines. And since that time in the Vietnam War, uh, DIA has been supporting special operations forces in all sorts of efforts, whether it be, you know, the Achille Lauro uh, uh, hijacking uh, uh, counterterrorism operations. We that's one of the things that we do. And in 1986, for instance, with Goldwater Nichols, DIA became an official combat support agency, which means that our principal customer, really, when it comes to supporting operations, is the military. Um, the Secretary of Defense and the military in, in order to decisively um, provide advantage on the battlefield. Well, and then you have organizations within the DOD like Delta Force, which is designed explicitly for counterterrorism, hostage rescue operations. I mean, that, 
that goes back to the 1970s and Charlie Beckwith. And that is kind of custom made for DIA support. Yeah, it is. And and as we're going to talk about, you know, one of the things that we do is we actually provide, you know, combat support packages or tactical support packages of information that we give to 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 the 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 combatants to actually be able to go out and know specifically where the target is, you know, what roads, what areas, uh, what the environmental factors and limitations are. Um, that's what that's effectively what we do is support support combat operations. You, there's a real beefing up that takes place during the Reagan administration, and that anyway, there's kind of historical obvious reasons for this, and, and for many people who understand what happened in 1983 in Lebanon and Beirut, uh, there were two major bombings. One of them particularly involved the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut, uh, and, and President Reagan reacted to this in, in a pretty decisive way uh, and changed somewhat to a degree the focus of DIA. Uh, and his abilities to react to these kind of things overseas. Yeah. So the president, after the after the the, the Marine Corps barracks bombings, really said, "I've got to get on top of this, and we can't be we can't always be so unresponsive to terrorist acts." Like so, nineteen eighty that period of time, we really saw terrorism escalate, and the, and the Marine Corps barracks bombings, I think, kind of really took Reagan over the over the limit of what his tolerance level was. And so he put out Presidential Directive NSDD-138. And what that said, specifically to the Department of Defense, was within 24 hours of any attack, I want a target package on my desk that, that, that tells me who I can attack, what the, what the best choices of targets are to be able to respond decisively against terrorist attacks. And really, that was a major effort, a major change in our mindset for terrorism because we we hadn't we hadn't really had to, 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 to think about, well, the president wants something on his desk within 24 hours on how we're going to respond. And the first thing we find out, of course, is is you can't put a package on the president's desk in 24 hours on what you should do in response to a terrorist attack unless you know the terrorists like foundationally, you know everything about them, who the groups are, who their leaders are, where they operate from what their vulnerabilities and keynotes are, uh, all of the things that you have to know about terrorist groups to begin with. And then the second thing, it's not even then developing the target support packages, it's really the warning. So you hope to be able to have some sense that something is around the bend, that something's gonna happen before it happens so that you can start putting together this, this targeting to be able to go after a terrorist group. And so after the 83 bombings, we have to establish a whole new, uh, a DIA establishes a whole new CT effort that is designed for three effective measures. So foundational intelligence to really build on who are the terrorist groups, warning, 24-hour warning infusion capability to be able to warn on terrorist attacks, and then a true targeting capability to actually then go out and, and attack terrorists from where they where they operate from. And it's because of that happening in the mid, you know, mid 1980s that there is a foundation to work from as we move forward and we start looking at bin Laden and Al Qaeda as that starts happening, as, as he starts sticking his head up uh, in the early to mid 1990s. So this isn't just a first for DIA. This is actually a first for the IC as a whole. I mean, this is not like these had been these kind of targeting cells and, and, and people working explicitly on terrorism had been popping up throughout CIA, you know, or NSA. This was a first across the board. Generally. I mean, you always hate to say first because there's always that spooky, 
you know, secret cell that people don't know about or whatever, but generally this was the first organization stood up specifically to target terrorists and to do so very rapidly. Uh, and again, that's all because the president, you know, when the president says, verily, I want something on my desk, we do it. Uh, and, and as we move forward into the 1990s, you know, when we first start hearing about bin Laden, and we're not hearing about bin Laden after, you know, the, the 1998 embassy bombings, we're tracking bin Laden from the very earliest days of his of his statements going out, calling out the United States and, and, and you know, issuing fatwas and so on. And we develop a, a bin Laden targeting cell in the Pentagon specifically to effectively do what we had been doing for these other terrorist groups since the 1980s, which is to develop a foundational understanding of bin Laden and his, his growing network to warn of his attacks and then also to be able to, to respond as necessary. At this point, though, it's gone beyond just DIA, I guess you'd have to say, because we hear a lot of the same things from those who had been at CIA during this time who had been tracking bin Laden since the very beginning. Yeah, the you know, and, and many of your your guests here have spoken about this before, which is uh, Bin Laden didn't just come out of nowhere. Nine uh, eleven attacks didn't just you know it didn't surprise a whole lot of us in this industry. We had a sense of what was going on. Uh, the issue was you know whether we really could have gotten out ahead of him before the nine eleven attacks, and really that you know that's a very difficult thing when he moved from Sudan. To Afghanistan, you know, he's he's operating in a landlocked country. He's moving around frequently. We are getting you know clear indications of where he's at. In fact, we uh, we were we were flying. They were the RQ1 predators then. They weren't MQ1, right? So they weren't armed at the time. And that's one of the real limitations in the hunt for Bin Laden in the early years. Is we finally had uh, a loiter capability on drones. So before the Predator, we were using AQM-34s, which had waypoint technology. It would fly a certain path, and it would take pictures along the way. What that would have done was you could have flown over Tarnak Farms, where you know Al-Qaeda was conducting training operations, and you could have gotten snapshots, and you'd have gotten a very good picture of, of the training facilities and so on, but they would have been images in time, frozen in time. With the RQ-1, we suddenly get this loiter capability that we are able to actually fly over and maintain presence over these camps. And, and in a couple of cases, we're actually able to identify, you know, that's probably Bin Laden down there. You know, we have very good sense that that's Bin Laden. But the, the difficulty then is being a landlocked country, uh, not having an armed capability on the Predator to actually be able to conduct an operation should we, should we be given authorization to do it. But then you're talking about, okay, well, what do we do? Do we launch a Patriot? You know, I mean, not Patriot, um, a Tomahawk strike from from you know our naval forces or something operating in the Gulf. That's several hours right. from the time that you see him on the ground to the time that the missiles are hitting. Well, that what President Clinton tried to do at one point, especially after the, Af the African bombings, I believe, is right. And it, it, you know, the the thing is, is he, is he there? Well, he was moving around a lot. The other thing is, they had families there, so there there becomes this entire political issue of collateral damage on the ground. And so the, the thing is, we were, we were catching glimpses of him uh, in Tarnak Farms, in other places like uh, Garand Akar, another training camp. Like we, we, we were getting senses of where he's at. And clearly after the embassy bombings, and then, and then more so even after the USS Cole bombings, there is a greater flexibility to be able to conduct operations, but we just didn't have the real resources to be able to to carry out operations on those rare occasions that we were able to actually 
catch a glimpse and say we feel pretty confident that he's he's actually there. Anyone try to figure out what the physics would be of a human male being hit over the head with a predator flying at about 150 miles an hour? <laughs> Forget you don't need a hellfire if you can just ram the guy with the drone. But that yeah, <laughs> you don't even need to answer that question. That was just me talking out loud. Um, pretty extraordinary was that we do hear again from CIA, and I am sure this is multi-agency about where um, they were running into some of the same problems when it came to finding bin Laden, not being able to do anything about it. And, and I think there, you, you hear the story of George Tenet going to the White House and saying, we need to put missiles, or Kofor Black going to the White House and saying, we need to put missiles on these damn things. Was that kind of a joint message to the White House at a certain point saying, like, we have an opportunity to do something about these guys. Yeah, and in fact, it, it, it's really one of those instances that we captured bin Laden on a, on, on a predator feed. Pretty, pretty certain it's bin Laden. And you look and you say, what can we do about it? And a couple seniors are in the room, they're looking at each other and they're saying, he's right there, how do, how do we take the strike? And, and you say, well, we really can't. And out of that becomes the joint effort to weaponize the Predator. So it's actually, you know, the hunt for bin Laden is instrumental in the weaponizing of the Predator. Uh, and that truly becomes like a cross-service. So not only within the military, DIA is very instrumental in the weaponization of the Predator, but then also across other government agencies. And quite frankly, I mean, outside of bin Laden, it just made sense to be able to take that next step in saying, like, what good does it do if you can actually capture a bad guy on film but not be able to take... Um, actions against him, but the hunt for bin Laden is really instrumental um, in that. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Pop culture and other formats have talked about how the CIA was screaming at the White House, the FBI was screaming at the White House about something coming in the summer of 2001 and certainly into the fall of 2001. DIA doesn't get any, a lot of credit with that, but you also were kind of yelling in the direction of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue saying, hey, look, they're getting ready for something big. In fact, the day before 9-11, you're at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue talking to Congress about something very specific in this this area. Yeah, so the entire intelligence community, we're seeing the same things. Like DIA put liaison officers in other government agencies to be able to work with them. We had a very close working relationship with CIA. We were seeing the same information. It was very clear in the summer of 2000 that things were really escalating. There was increased operational tempo at Al-Qaeda training camps. Uh, they were putting out more propaganda statements, and we were really, really concerned. Uh, and then the escalation of the embassy bombings, USS Cole, and other efforts coming 
we said we, we simply do not have, DIA simply does not have the footprint that we need to do everything that we want to do to be able to secure the country and our own forces and also be able to take offensive action against groups like Al-Qaeda, given our current limited capability. So as 2000 is moving forward in 2001 and we're seeing all of these indicators and we become more and more concerned. I mean, concerned to the point that when the first plane flew into the, the, the World Trade Center, um, if you talk to our bin Laden cell, like, there was no ambiguity. We knew exactly who it was. We knew exactly what was happening. We had we had known for months that something big was in was in the the was in the offing. Uh, the national security se- uh, assessments were all saying something's going to happen. We can't tell you where, when, or how, but we know something's going to happen. But we ended up going to Congress on September 10th, uh, 2001. So yeah, a day before 9/11 saying we have to restructure our entire CT capability to be able to address the expanding nature of terrorism, and specifically al-Qaeda. And the interesting thing is that day on September 10th, um, the enthusiasm, we'll just say there was there was not like a clear, sure, we need to do that, mm-hmm. walking out of the room. Uh, it was something that there was going to be some discussion on. And, and, and luckily for us, um, when the attack happened, therefore, we had a plan already ready to activate. We had already laid out the number of people we needed, the type of organization that we were going to structure around, uh, who we were going to be targeting and how we were going to be doing it. And so when 9-11 happened that next day, um, you trust me, the green light to be able to establish what was the Joint Intelligence Task Force on Combating Terrorism in DIA, which was a critical component in the war on terrorism and going after bin Laden. Um, basically, that happens almost immediately after 9-11. Well, you can imagine the attitude on September 12th was very different than on September 10th. Yeah, abs- absolutely. We, you know, This wasn't a small organizational change. It wasn't taking a DI that already had a CT element and taking it from 50 people to 75 or 100 people. This was a wholesale dramatic change in our outlook on terrorism and, and, and how we structured against it, going to literally hundreds of people dedicated to, to doing this. And, and, and of course, right after 9-11, our entire structure changes anyway as well so that we become truly an offensive organization. The, the charter for, for JIT-FCT, you know, explicitly charts out the fact that JIT-FCT and DIA is meant to be an offensive countermeasure to, to terrorism. And that, that's kind of a new element there, too, that an organization is specifically tasked to take the war to the enemy the way that, that JIDF was. So one of the the key first missions of JITFCT, JITFCT, uh, was to kind of sit down and really understand the leadership of Al Qaeda to kind of map the networks to target things, look link for Bin Laden, and that's when you ran into again. A pop culture makes us think the courier, you know, the courier that leads the Bin Laden in the end was a end of the hunt kind of revelation. Uh, but DIA spotted the potential of using a courier and actually that courier to, hunt, to get to bin Laden really early on. Yeah, there was, there's the three kind of avenues that we figured that you could take to try and f- to find bin, bin Laden. Uh, the first was family members, so charting and, and, and understanding the family network of, of bin Laden. Um, next, the, what, you, what everybody would kind of think, the core leadership you know, so when you have the third in command, you know the 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 senior operational planners for Al Qaeda, they've they're probably going to be interacting with Bin Laden at some point. They're going to stick their head out, and they're going to be able to to provide leads for where Bin Laden is. 
but really we thought that the key to finding him was going to be a courier and very early on even in 2003 we had already developed a target support package these are really long you know they could be 10 but they could also be 50 60 80 pages of material on a specific individual every it's essentially everything that you can find out about a person not not unlike a uh, you know in a criminal case the file on the criminal uh, everything you can find out about that person in 2003 we had developed an entire target portfolio on the individual that ultimately led to bin Laden you know almost a decade later so 2003 we identify you know all of this information on him. we put together a very solid package on him and then in the next two years we really came to the point that in 2005 we said uh, you know, if, if anybody's going to lead us to, Al uh, to bin Laden, it's probably going to be this courier. And we put that out in a package um, to, uh, to, to our uh, special operations uh, brethren so that they could also start looking and, and going down their rabbit holes of information um, to be able to find him as well. So the, the identification of the courier, uh, it's something that happens much, much earlier than, than common belief uh, right. 2000 and, and actually of course we're putting the package together in 2003 that means you know most of the information we're getting on him really is building up in 2002 going into 2003 so his identification was known very early on in the process and that's kind of what makes the why it took so long to find bin laden one of those interesting things on how how much they tried to secure their communications, how much they tried to secure bin Laden. We identify the courier, put information out, substantive information out in 2003, and yet it still takes almost a decade to be able to track him down and track the lead from him to where bin Laden was in Abbottabad. I think for people who aren't in the community or haven't been involved in the last 17 now years uh, in operations in Afghanistan and in Iraq, may not understand how much... DIA employees, whether they're analysts or, or officers, are deployed overseas, are forward deployed. And that started right away. I mean, that's something where it's not just people sitting inside the Pentagon thinking about shit. You're sending people overseas to give almost immediate feedback from some of the information coming in from whether it's special operations or conventional forces. Yeah, our directorate of operations was on the ground in Afghanistan within weeks of 9-11. Of we had collectors on the ground. Actually, there's a pretty funny story. So one of our first managers, he goes out to the staging points where we're going to be sending people into Afghanistan. He lands, and all that his role is, he gets out there, and all he's supposed to see is, okay, so this is going to be our base of operations. You know, what type of electricity is there? What type of housing is there? You're like, And then he's supposed to fly back here, get everything squared away so that he can move teams out forward to start supporting operations. Well, he lands at this forward operating base, this, this command post, with two linguists, five five linguists in multiple different languages. And the uh, special operators were going to go into Afghanistan literally right after he got on the ground. And he said, well, look, I'm, I'm here. I've got to check out our forward operating ba base so that we can start moving people out forward here to, to, to support your operations. They said, we don't, need, we don't need that now. What we need is you and your, your, your linguist going forward with us like right away. I don't know if I can do that. I'm supposed to be going back to D.C. to help set up, you know, our, our entire supporting operations, you know. And the, 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 the special force commander says, no, you're on a helicopter. We're flying into Afghanistan, and I need your couriers. And, you know, it's, it's interesting the buildup on how things happen because those linguists go in. 
They're immediately involved in combat operations. They capture several people, not, not, not the least of which is uh, the American Taliban member. And they start conducting interrogations, right? Because we've actually got linguists then on the ground. As a combat support agency, one of our jobs is support, right? So, so, so providing all of the necessary communications tools, linguists, um, materials out for to be able to support operations. These two linguists are immediately in Afghanistan with, 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 with one of the senior um, uh, collectors out there. And they get on the ground. They start interrogating people. They start drawing information in. And out of this... Uh, within just a few weeks of being on the ground. It, it, so when we think about human intelligence, generally, you know, one of the interesting things is people think it's all about recruiting assets, you know, spies, and running, running, you know, spy or asset networks. DIA was doing a lot more than just that on the ground. So we were doing linguist and interrogation support. Our guys started going out into the uh, environment because one of the things that happened right away with our linguists we were able to get in well with some of the tribal leaders in the areas that we were going to and securing an area from which you could operate from. I mean, it's, it's easy to think about you just because we're so strong, you know, mil American military power, you're just going to go into Afghanistan and you'll just build up a base of support and security and you're going to be good. That's not the way it really works. You have right. to we didn't drop up. We didn't drop the 82nd 101st in. We we're sending in Green Berets and... Right. SEALs and that CIA paramilitary. And we had to build local indigenous support to be able to conduct operations. And so DIA, with our linguists, are going out and we're establishing and building these relationships. We build up these small bases of support to be able to support special operations forces. They start taking us out and we take on the tunnel rat missions, going into the actual tunnels and exploiting all of the information that we discover in all of Al-Qaeda's tunneling efforts. Uh, battle damage assessment. Every time that there's a strike, we're going out to the battle or to the area where there was a strike and conducting battle damage uh, analysis, exploitation, um, document exploitation, all the pocket litter, all of the thumb, all the all the hard drives and everything like that. Battle um, uh, document exploitation. Um, we found that uh, if some of our guys would go out with uh, cotton swabs, that we could start conducting basic biometrics. Um, analysis on the battlefield, making sure that we are capturing information on all the people who we're capturing, right? So suddenly DIA takes on this big biometrics effort on the battlefield, uh, policing the battlefield, you know, going out there and actually doing all the on-battlefield, on-site exploitation and environmental analysis. And then also we were running assets as well. So our, our department, our directorate of operations, we're not just doing standard human support of running assets. We are doing all of these different things on the ground right after 9-11. And that all goes for the hunt for bin Laden, because that's what all this is ultimately mm -hmm. talking about today, which is, you know, you're capturing these folks and you're interrogating them. And one of the principal intelligence requirements that we're talking about here is where's bin Laden? And you're doing all the document exploitation and materials on the battlefield. And in that, you're looking for where is where is bin Laden? Uh, you're going through the tunnels and everything, and you're looking for any information that you can find. And among all of that, too, is bin Laden and then your assets. You're running your assets. So all of this information that's being gathered, although bin Laden is not the only person that we're looking for, uh, he's certainly one of the most significant people. And, mm -hmm. and all of that information that we're gathering has, you know, when I say that DIA had more than our fair share of support to be able to find bin Laden 
um, that begins on the ground shortly after 9-11. And that doesn't end, incidentally, just so that just because we start doing it right after 9-11, that doesn't end a month or two after we get in Afghanistan. We were deploying thousands of people to right. Afghanistan to support um, special operations forces and to be able to conduct analysis on where bin Laden and other high-value figures are. Uh, you know, the thing is, is I, I've, I tell people, even though it took so long to get bin Laden, uh, the worst job in the world for quite a while that you would have wanted was to be the number three mm-hmm. in al-Qaeda, right? The number three guys, because at some point down that chain of command, below Zawahiri and bin Laden, at some point, guys had to start communicating and sticking their head up out of the holes and, and, and supporting operations and moving money around and everything. And you couldn't secure them the way that you secured bin Laden and Zawahiri. Those guys were were getting killed and captured. I remember there was, there was like one summer where it was every like week there was another number three guy. It was like the drummer for Spinal Tap. Like it was just one dead after the next or captured for the number three guy for Al-Qaeda. I'm wondering, you know, we, we've talked a lot with a lot of other people about the, the coordinated efforts between all the different agencies. I'm wondering, is it innately easier for DIA to work with the other DOD intelligence agencies? Is there kind of like a, a fellowship with NGA and NRO and NSA because you're under the auspices of the Office of Secretary of Defense? I, no, I, I, because we all have our own missions and yeah. we all have our own requirements and leadership. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't see it that way. I, I just really see it more in, I hate to say a lot of it's personality driven, but some of it's personality driven. But when when you're actually able to embed people in other organizations, that's when I think that you're able to to get the best value added. And so, like I said, DIA, we're putting people in CIA throughout this entire process. After 9-11, we were embedding people in the Joint Terrorism Task Forces all throughout the country here in with the FBI. Uh, there's joint units and uh, joint intelligence units um, in Afghanistan. Um, we tried to make everything really joint because really in order to break down those barriers of information sharing, we found that it was much better to coordinate and consolidate elements and put them together. And so you would often hear about, you know, these CIA, you know, units out forward. Generally, a lot of these units were multi-organizational. So we had dozens and dozens of people out in Afghanistan, and we were generally all working together because you just, we just couldn't afford as a government to have stovepiping after 9-11. And it's not to say that it didn't happen. And you still look through, you know, some of the findings after things like Fort Hood that, you know, there's still stovepiping. There's still, you know, lack of information sharing to the degree that some people would like. But after 9-11, the barriers really came down substantially. And the integration of, of organizations really went a long way toward that. And that included in the hunt for bin Laden. Well, let's work up to that the actual raid itself because kind of that's the climax, although we will have a, a denouement at the very end. The climax is the raid itself. And, you know, again, pop culture has kind of said, you know, we spotted it. The SEALs, they know what they're doing. Let's send them in. And they're, I can talk for days about all the practice that went into it and the building the full-size replicas out in Nevada somewhere. But DIA's role really was to do what they had been doing for decades at this point is to get the war fighters, the special operators in the best possible position they could be for the mission that was in front of them. Right. And so one of the things that led up to 
the Abbottabad raid was the formation of the joint Abbottabad uh, coordination cell. This is a, again, just by the very name of it, a joint unit put together to put together all of the information that we had found out on Abbottabad, on the compound, uh, the likely, who the likely people in the house were, what the security environment was, those types of things that they needed to be concerned of, um, the weather type of patterns. I mean, just everything that you could possibly imagine going into a major strike um, well behind, you know, a foreign country's lines or whatever. Um, what, what, are, what, what are the air defenses in the region? You know, what, what, what is it that you have to be concerned about going into this? And the Joint Abbottabad Coordination Cell um, put together a lot of that information to enable the, the successful attack that, that happened. And DIA, as well as several other organizations, for the efforts that led up to the uh, Abbottabad raid through the Joint Abbottabad Coordination Cell actually won the National Intelligence Meritorious Unit Citation, which is a, a fairly significant citation for the efforts that went into that. Uh, you know, there's very few instances where you see a raid like this that happened where there wasn't a substantial effort that went into the pre-operational planning for it. And I, going back to Sonte, you know, decades before even they actually built a camp, a fake camp to look like Sonte. They actually built a model. We built, you know, CIA built a model with our maps and everything. Our guy sitting right next to the map maker at CIA building this model of the camp, right? And, and you know, you look at what happened in the Vietnam War with Sonte and you take a few decades forward and you look at a bottom bottom. What do you know? There's a model of the compound that's developed by NGA and there's all of the operational military intelligence that we and, and other D, other other elements of DOD are putting together, and CIA is right there taking some of their asset information and putting it all together to create this this kind of semblance of information that's necessary to be able to conduct the raid. What about DIA support from the mission itself? Can you talk about that, or is that a little too inside the weeds? Well, that that level of, of so, so when you're talking about when you're talking to the people who are actually involved in all of this, um, there, it, it's there's 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 a lot of overhead imagery. There's a lot of um, working with the the operational guys to know, like again, the type of security environment, and the boundaries, and everything. Who was in the house? You have to remember going into the actual raid. Uh, it, it wasn't. You see the movie. It's like well. Who, you know, what's what's the chance he's in there? And the one person says, "Well, it's ninety-nine percent." There was there was ambiguity. You know, this wasn't a perfect. There wasn't perfect intelligence here. This isn't fifteen October nineteen sixty-two of a U two flying over and taking that perfect snapshot of of ballistic missiles. You know, in Cuba that you could say right there, there they are. Uh, so the best that we could do was to be able to at least prepare the operators for the environment that they were going into. Where, how many doors are there going to be? What type of, of, of and what about the community itself? Do you need to worry about the community? There's a military school nearby. Uh, what about that, right? So being a military academy, it's like our West Point. Uh, what type of, of capabilities does the school have there? Do they have tanks? Do they train with those types of things? What should you be aware of there? All of these different things go into that, that type of operation. But in terms of like that silver bullet type of information, a lot of that wasn't, right. wasn't there. Well, I, and one last question specifically about this is you think of someone like Bill McRaven, the, you know, the, the, the commander of the operation. How much back and forth with DIA 
up to the point of the operation, even during the operation, was there with kind of think of a SOCOM commander? Like, how much are they constantly getting information from DIA? Is there, I imagine it as there is a DIA officer standing next to him, like almost all the time. Well, there, there, it's not from DIA. It's going to be from a joint, yeah. a joint cell, and the joint cell commander there, who's going to be providing the information. And there is, there is information up until the last, the last minute going in there. Because again, you're worried about, you're worried about the air defense systems. You're worried about looking and seeing is there any new um, habitat changes going on around around the the compound. So yes, there is information that's going in. The latest information is going is going forward as rapidly as possible. But here again is the the benefit of having a joint unit where you're able to take everybody's information, right? So that it's not just you're not just looking at DI and its intelligence, or you're not just looking at NGA and its intelligence. You're really taking it all together and putting all of that together. And you really can't get that unless you're you're working together as a streamlined consolidated type of group who who really puts mission first uh the second you say mission doesn't come first and my right my own rice bowl my own parochial interest are, are more important then that's when you lose lose the ball for us americans getting bin laden was kind of the end of this era for dia and for the pentagon and for the united states military and the ic it was a great wonderful benchmark to meet but it's not like al-qaeda disappeared afterwards and so one of the huge benefits from getting bin Laden wasn't just getting bin Laden. It was also all the stuff you could get intelligence-wise from that. And that, you know, again, if you see Zero Dark Thirty, you know, you know the, the movie that makes this, you know, the, most of us kind of picture when we think about this raid, they spend a lot of time and for obvious reasons just grabbing everything, all the exploitation and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about DIA's role after the fact? Yeah, so they, they, ca- they literally capture all the computers there they capture all the documents uh we actually have his will you know his last will and testament we have his diary um and so dia is an executive agent of document exploitation and all of this media is 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 taken from the field it gets brought back and is exploited dia sends approximately 20 people uh to the abadabad uh joint operation abadabad media exploitation task force so again here's a joint unit whose sole job is to take experts from around around all of the different government agencies and to exploit all of this media and it isn't a few documents or a few files or one computer uh it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of documents uh and and a bunch of media as well so videos and and things like that as well all of this is exploited and it takes it takes a a huge level of effort to go through this the first thing you're doing is triaging and and you have to have for another thing is you have to have Pashtun, russian dari urdu farsi speakers you have to have a range of different interpreters to be able to look at all of this information because it's not all in just one language or, or you know, one type of communication. So you're, you're, you're looking at multiple different uh, languages, multiple different types of communications, hundreds of thousands of documents, and the first thing you're doing is triaging it. Is there anything here that speaks to an immediate threat or something coming up? Right? Is there anything that we can get from this that doesn't just tell us about the network or other people out there, but is there anything out there that can tell us about uh, potential operations that are coming forward, potential warning. 
what we actually found is that bin Laden had it is he he actually had been communicating so the through 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 the courier there actually had been um a a good deal of moving back and forth but what we found is that bin Laden was behind the curve on everything he just could not with the the limited ability to be able to get his word out with how often the courier could come he was just really behind uh the times and so could not provide timely operational guidance to his subordinates so in going through and triaging all the documents you know you're not seeing a lot there that says conduct an attack in the next two months in the united states there was some some very generic guidance hey conduct attacks in the united states on the anniversary of 9-11 conduct attacks on christmas so there's this type of generic language that's coming out there but generally he was behind the times but hundreds of thousands of documents and cia in november 2017 as a matter of fact uh released 470,000 of those of those files it's just an astronomical and staggering uh amount of information to have to go through what poor bastard from what poor agency was stuck watching all the bin laden porn stash that was there's a no comment coming from the other side of the table you know, i'm not going to make you answer that um it's one thing to grab all this stuff it's another thing to actually use it to our advantage and, and i'm wondering about production about the ability to turn this raw intelligence and actually actionable stuff moving forward even you said we learned a lot about Ben Laden. We learned that he was kind of out of touch. But how did what we got from Abbottabad turn into actual intelligence for the re- going after the rest of Al-Qaeda? A lot of it came out very, very rapidly. So we were, we were triaging the information, but we were also looking for information to exploit. And within, within just a couple of weeks of the raid, uh, JIT-FCT and other elements of, of DIA are providing you know, voluminous information to the range of customers going up from the president all the way down to, again, going down to special forces and saying, hey, found out about this new person that we probably need to look at who's who's more senior in al-Qaeda's organization than we thought. So, you know, within just a couple of weeks, you know, JIT-FCT does 59 written products, um, 27 site exploitation updates, so people are actually going out based on information that we derive going out to new sites and exploiting new sites. 55 uh, media exploitation center reports. So this is all the, ex- we're exploiting that media that's coming in. We're providing reports continuously on all the information that we're finding. Uh, 27 daily products, nearly daily uh, combined joint intelligence operations center reports to senior leaders about what's happening. Um, all of these are being provided to the range of customers out there so that you know, the the thing about intelligence is that it cannot be a self-looking ice cream cone. You can't just do it for its own sake. The point of intelligence is to make information operationally usable to the range of customers. And so DIA is taking all of that um, right away and, and doing what we can with it to make sure that we're informing everybody who has a need to know this information. I mean, is there a single bigger operation that led to more exploitable data than the bin laden raid i'm trying to think of you know finding a treasure trove of information like that i just can't think historically i mean I, the, the analogy might be like the, the eagle's nest but the war is over right so it's like yeah we got all hitler's stuff but he's already dead and the war is basically over you're finding the leader all of his inside secrets, including his porn habits, and I keep bringing that up, but and everything else, 
while you're still in the middle of a fight, obviously, it's now been seven years plus with his organization. I mean, it doesn't seem to get any better than that. No, it doesn't. Uh, now, to, to be fair, again, in, in going through all of this, a lot of the information is dated. Um, a lot of it has very little to do with anything operational. But certainly, there's there's very few instances where you get this type of volume of information. You know, you, you, you may go after, may hit a safe house or something where you get some really operationally useful information in a lar- in a small quantity that you're able to exploit. But here, truly, the ability to map out his network even further and come to terms with leadership structure, how things are operating and being done, uh, and so on, is is really a big takeaway from from all of this. Again, just released to the public, 470,000 documents. That's that's incredible. And I should note also that the. Uh, that uh, Joint Operations of Badabad Media Exploitation Task Force also won a National Intelligence Meritorious Unit Citation. So, you know, these two operational organizations, one in coordinating before the attack, before the raid, and then the other exploitation of documents afterwards, um, both get recognition for their significance in the role of uh, the bin Laden raid. Is there anything that's been declassified, or will there soon be, or are we going to wait for 50 years to see what operational successes came from the take from the bin Laden compound? I'm sure that some historians like me will be putting that out there uh, shortly. Uh, unfortunately, this historian is overwhelmed with the museum right now, <laughs> and so can't do that. But uh, yeah, you can you can uh, you can assume at some point that we'll be putting all that together. Well, and we'll have you back when we do. Um, one last thing to talk about, which which kind of people don't think a whole lot about, because you assume that, you know, the six-foot-whatever guy with the beard on the third floor of the Abbottabad complex that looks a whole lot like Osama bin Laden is Osama bin Laden. But you you got to be sure. DIA played the vital role in actually identifying scientifically that the guy we killed on the third floor of the Abbottabad house was bin Laden. Yeah, you can't be wrong on this one. You can't go everything through everything that you went through on this all of the public footage, everything. This is, again, the largest manhunt uh, in America. Uh, you can't get this one wrong. You've got to absolutely be right on it. And DIA led the U.S. government scientific coalition that ran all the forensic analysis to validate the fact that it was uh, bin Laden. And actually, there's a, there's a quote that I think is kind of interesting that we put out right after, uh, right after the raid. And it said, uh, DNA analysis conducted separately by the Department of Defense and CIA labs has positively identified bin Laden. DNA samples collected from his body were compared to a comprehensive DNA profile derived from bin Laden's large extended family. Based on that analysis, the DNA unquestionably was his. The possibility of a mistaken identity on the basis of this analysis is approximately 11.8 quadrillion quadrillion right and i'll let you count the zeros well that's 10 to the 15th right 11.8 quadrillion to give you a sense i like to tell people about this like there's only been about 170 billion people in all human history and here we have an 11.8 quadrillion to one chance that it wasn't bin laden based on the forensic analysis that we were able to conduct after the operation so in essence, in all of human history, if you took all the human beings in human history and added them together multiple, multiple times, 
uh, it would still not come to the statistical probability of it not having been bin Laden. So I think that we can say with a fair degree of certainty, aside from even just the facial recognition and other biometric analysis done, um, that we were able to validate um, irrefutably beyond every U.S. government standard that it actually was bin Laden. Um, who was who was killed in the raid? And that comes from being for deployed. That comes from being on the scene, not at Abbottabad, but on the scene. You know, with the uh, the minute the body comes back from the raid, you're able to jump on that and do immediate forensic analysis. Absolutely, a certain movie shows one person waiting there. Yes. You know, and that that just isn't the way that that it happens. There's a lot that has to be done when something like this, when this, when the raid is completed. And, and so there are people there to be able to obtain forensic analysis, forensic materials to be able to validate that it's bin Laden. And that, that analysis is done very rapidly. And again, I go back to just a couple of weeks after, a few weeks after 9-11, we're already on the ground, you know, in very short order conducting biometric analysis on the ground in Afghanistan. And so this is just a continuation of one of DI's major missions throughout the entire Afghanistan campaign is biometric analysis on on uh, on the battlefield. We've talked in the past about DIA's publications or things that people can look on things online, whether it's kind of the Soviet, now Russian military power. Uh, is there anything that's going to be publicly available on some of the stuff you're doing for the museum? Yeah, so our museum is, is being built right now. Um, it's going to be finished uh, within the next year. It'll have about 36 major stories of our agency in it. And when that's done, we are going to make it uh, publicly available. Sadly, because it's in our agency, people can't just walk up to the door and come in and visit the museum. But we're going to be having a robust website so that people can come in and actually look at. So, for instance, with the hunt for bin Laden, we have a number of really interesting artifacts from, for instance, Tarnak Farms, where bin Laden conducted a series of propaganda statements uh, at Tarnak Farms, and behind him is this big painted globe. And shortly after 9/11, uh, Tarnak Farms was effectively obliterated. Uh, went in, and there's we have we have pieces of the wall from the Tarnak Farms. We have propaganda paintings, uh, his will. We have a whole 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 range of different things for that. And that's just one of the. I was going to ask about the will because I'm like, if you're not using that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, have, we you know, so it will be it will be a publicly available um, on the, on the internet. We'll have a hopefully hopefully very robust website so that visitors can come and, and actually see not just the hunt for bin Laden, but for instance, uh, you'll be able to see uh, Saddam Hussein coming out of the ground and learn about DI's role in the capture of Saddam Hussein. Uh, we already talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis in there right now and what we have open and and uh, our diplomatic efforts, a whole range of different things that we'll be we'll be discussing in the museum. So Greg Elder is the Chief Historian of the Defense Intelligence Agency. We're going to hear from him again uh, as we have regular conversations as we move from our old, now current museum to our future museum. Uh, we expect to have a much closer relationship with DIA. And certainly, uh, it's, it's always fun to talk to you, Greg. I mean, we, we, we go back and forth in the inter, intervening times, thinking like, what do we want to talk about next? What do we want to talk about next? And a lot of times like this one, it's, What's coming out? Like, what can we get our hands on that we've never talked about before? So it's great to take a deep dive of this Bin Laden raid, and we're looking forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for having me again. Take care.